Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you live your life shaped by the way. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you today. I've got a wonderful friend up here. I don't think needs to be introduced to this church. I think we all know him pretty well, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say who he is anyway. Uh, this is Rabbi Paul Clausen, and I, I told him this morning, yeah, somebody wants to cheer for that. Go ahead. We love, we love Rabbi Paul here. And uh, I, I, told, I told Paul earlier, I said, you know, when you did the, the Passover Seder for us, I kept referring to you as Rabbi Paul, and some folks came up and after their service said, you know, should somebody who's not a Christian be leading our worship? So to be clear, Rabbi Paul is a Messianic Jew. He has received Yeshua HaMashiach, okay, so he is absolutely a believer in our, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, but uh, Rabbi Paul has taken, with Karen and I, we've taken, I was trying to count it up, almost 200 people to Israel Oh, since 2017. Actually, you snuck in one before with another one of our staff, I think. So almost 200 people. And, uh, so, and he's done a variety of things with us. And I asked him to come today. I just wanted to have him lead us in a word of prayer uh, today. And I'll let him explain a little bit more about this. Today is the International uh, Pray for the Peace of Jerusalem Day. And I thought, I'm going to... You know, I can pray, but I'm going to ask Rabbi Paul to come and do that. And, and you've, this day, and Paul being here is really interesting, we've been doing a series in Genesis. Today we're in chapter 32, which as you know is the first time we're going to hear the word Israel. And uh, so I think this day and you and all, it's, it's all, just all, it's like God had a plan. I know. <laughs> so, let, go ahead together. and take it from here. Thank you so much and shalom and thank you so much for the opportunity, Pastor Randy. Yeah. Uh, good Sunday morning to you. Did you notice the sun is out today, right? After yeah. all these cloudy days, thank God for the sun. I, again, like... Uh, like Pastor Randy said, my name is Paul Klassen. I'm the president of Aliyah Foundation, which is a Jewish ministry that are passionate about introducing the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua Jesus, to people everywhere. To the Jewish people and Arabs and, you know, wherever they may be found. You know, this past Friday began a festival, the biblical festival of tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called the biblical festival of booths, if you read different versions of your Bible. And in Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. And so Jewish people in Israel, communities all over the world, Jewish communities are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles as instituted by Moses 3,300 years ago. And the Jewish people have kept it ever since. Imagine keeping a biblical festival that God instituted. In fact, there is a scripture that says they are going to in, inviting everyone who believes even in Yeshua Jesus to participate in this festival when Jesus comes back. Anybody ready to party? Yeah. <laughs> right? So Jewish people are kind of already beginning learning how to do it. And then we're going to all join in the Jewish Messiah as we do it together. What's interesting, though, what's uh, in the last 20 years, there has been a new global movement that has begun, and that is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why pray? You know, Jerusalem is the city 
where God has put his name. This is a city that where God has come to to be able to permeate and send out his word. And so why should we pray? You know, Jerusalem, if you think about the Middle East today, if you watch any news, all you see is conflict. All you see is, you know, people, governments trying to make one peace treaty after another. They fail over and over again. But so, you know, rumors of war and war just persist all the time. So how can peace be possible in this city of peace? You know, God had a plan. In fact, God sent his own son, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, to usher in a new type of peace. Mm -hmm. In fact, Yeshua said, he says, I come to bring you a peace that the world cannot even produce. And he was willing to lay his life down for that peace so that not just people in Jerusalem would have peace, but all over the world, people could enjoy that, that very same salvation and peace. And so this day, the first day of October, first Sunday, I should say, of October, happens to be set aside to pray. And 179 nations from around the globe, small communities to large communities in China, Australia, they've been already praying today in Africa, Russia, Small communities have been praying for the peace of Jerusalem, and we are just simply hoping to join in that prayer of peace here this morning as we focus on the God kind of peace. Amen? Amen. So what I chose to do is to uh, actually print out that prayer that people are praying across the globe and ask you, invite you to join me here this morning to pray with me. Would you rise? Let's pray this prayer that all Christians all over the world are praying. Avinu Malkenu, our Father in heaven, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in obedience to your word, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the land of Israel. Bless the people of Israel with your promise of salvation and redemption, and shield them with your love, and bring them to the renewed hope for their day of salvation. Guide Israel's leaders and advisors with the light of your truth. For your name's sake, I ask that you remember your promise and bless the land with peace and its inhabitants with lasting joy. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, we all say, Amen. Amen. You know, this peace that God promises, yes, it permeates from Jerusalem, And it permeates right to your neighborhood, right into your family, right into your personal life. So as we pray for Jerusalem, let's continue to do that because it, in a sense, ricochets right back to our own lives. We get to participate in that. And lastly, I just want to do a quick shout out on a save the date because I'm inviting all of you as my guest to a worship night celebrating the God of Israel. And it's, only, it's going to happen actually just seven miles away from here at Destination in Hopewell. So you're all my guests. So please come out, register so that you can save your seat. Thank you again. Shalom, shalom. You can take that down. Thank you, Paul. You can go take that with you.
We are, uh, I appreciate Paul coming over and sharing, th- sharing with us today. And uh, Karen and I are, are actually working on a, a trip for spring of 2025. So we will, uh, Lord willing, be going back there. And uh, yeah, Destination Church, I think a lot of y'all are familiar with that, will be hosting a, a, an event with the guy who wrote Days of Elijah. Y'all know that song? Uh, we'll be we'll be over there. We wanted to host it, but we're a little busy that week. We we have the SBC convention uh, that week, and so we're not able to do it. But it's it's going to be a great event. I hope you'll go over there and and support that. Well, as like I said earlier, we're continuing our series today in Genesis 32. Uh, gosh, you know what, what is it about us that we can have such victory and then turn around and have such defeat? And this just seems to be kind of a constant, ongoing way that, that we walk with the Lord. Victory and defeat. Victory and, and defeat. We can experience the blessing of trusting in God and literally go right back to self-sufficiency. Right back to trusting in ourselves. This is not something that can happen. Folks, when you hit your alarm every morning, you're in self-sufficiency mode. It, it's not that it can happen. It is always happening, and we have this struggle back and forth, back and forth. Boy, we're going to see that today in the life of Jacob. He is certainly somebody that is back and forth, back and forth. When when we open Genesis 32, he is experiencing a victory with the Lord. He is excited. God has said, it's time to go home. It's time to go back to the promised land. And he has been away for 20 years now. And he is going home a a very wealthy person. He is going home with a very large family. I mean, all these kind of outward signs of success. He's just covered up in it. And, And so he's really excited to be returning home other than the fact he's also scared to death to be returning home. Because 20 years ago, there was a reason he left home. Esau, his twin brother, his older, by minutes, (laughs) his older twin brother. And he had deceived, he had tricked his brother, not like played a joke on him and he fell down and got hurt. No, like a life-changing deception, something that would have impacted and affected the rest of his life. And Esau said, I'm going to kill you. And that was not a metaphor. And so mom and dad sent Jacob away to go live with Uncle Laban. And we've spent some time the last couple of weeks looking at that. But now he's, now he's returning home, nervous though. So he's already begun the process of moving this massive household of his. And he sends a messenger on ahead. Hey, tell everybody I'm coming home. Now, why would you want to give Esau that warning? Well, he's, he's trying to test the waters. You, you, what, what, what does Esau do when he hears that I'm, I'm coming home? So the messenger goes, the messenger returns, and Jacob says, well, so, 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 what did he say? What what he do? And the messenger says, well, you know, to be honest with you, he hopped on a camel and he's on the way to meet you. He, he's not waiting till you get home. He's coming here to meet you. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, oh, and one other thing. He's bringing 400 men with him. Okay, so now Jacob's worst nightmare is coming true. He's not just coming to kill me. He's coming to slaughter everything I have. He's scared to death. And do you know what Jacob does next? The absolute right and perfect thing. 
I mean, he nails it. Because we can do that, right? I mean, every now and then, we just do exactly what we're supposed to. Look, at, look in Genesis 32, verse 9. Tremendous response uh, after that messenger's message. Verse 9, then Jacob prayed. That's always a good first step, isn't it? He prayed. And, and boy, he prayed something that we've heard in our song this morning. Oh, God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, oh, Lord, you told me, return to your land and to your relatives, and you promised me I will treat you kindly. Now, we can stop right there. I mean, technically, God could kind of interrupt here and say, that's right, I did, so what's the problem? Go do what I told you to do. I've made a promise about what so stop living in fear. Stop acting like so. I've got this covered. But again, let's just keep mostly on the good here. He's, he's praying. Verse 10, I'm not, I'm not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. Oh, Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid he's coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But but you promised me I will surely treat you kindly and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. Now, you know, he's afraid for, for good reason and he takes an absolutely right and perfect first step. He prays. And this is a good prayer. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm the judge and critique of good prayers. Okay, I'm just saying that based on on what Scripture shows us in prayer and how to pray. What does he do in this prayer? Man, he acknowledges God. He shows humility. He makes a very specific request, and the request is tied to what God has said. It's tied to what God has promised. This is a good prayer. He is depending upon the Lord. And then he does what I'm sure you've done. You get up from that prayer of depending upon God, and you go right back to depending upon yourself. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay, come on now, we do. I did. I did the right thing. I woke up this morning and I prayed about it. But boy, when I got out of the car, when I walked into that building, I absolutely took ownership of this right back. I'm going to handle this my way. And that's what he does with Esau. Now, as it starts out, it's not that I'm getting ready to show you his sin, his failure, what he did. He doesn't do anything bad. You know, he does. He says, hey, I I need to grease the wheel here. I'm going to send a gift to Jacob. And I'm not, it's not a little gift. It's, it's a big gift. It's kind of a life-changing gift, kind of like the life-changing deception. I mean, there's a little bit of a hit-the-lottery type of gift. Okay, And because Jacob is, well, you could say conniving. We'll just say very smart, very strategic. He takes that gift and he divides it up. And he, and he has the gift go out in three waves. So that as, as Esau and his, his men are coming, you know, they get hit with the first gift. And the first gift all by itself is enough to say, wow, this is, this is a really nice gift. But, but hardly before that's been absorbed, then here comes the next gift. And, the, and then here comes the next gift. 
Not anything really wrong with doing that. Maybe it's even the right thing to do in light of what he had done to his brother. It's the next thing he does where I really realize you didn't get this from God. You went out on your own on this one. So fearing, fearing that the gift may not appease his brother, he divides his family up. And he takes the servant wives and their kids, and he puts them out front. Now, when I say their kids, that's, that's his sons, right? He, take, he takes them and puts them out front, and then about a mile back, and it doesn't say a mile back in the text. I just filled that in for help. But, you know, some distance back, then he puts Leah, remember she's the not so, you know, Puts Leah there with her sons, again his sons, and then way in the back, we've got Jacob, Rachel, and Joseph. Now, you stop and think about it. What do you think? How do you feel if you're one of the sons up front? Thanks, Dad. You know, while we're getting slaughtered, I hope you get a chance to get away. We're We're sure praying for you. I know this is scary. Oh my golly, Jacob. You know, I don't think he's the worst husband father ever. He gets honorable mention. We'll we'll put him in for for the running. You You know what he did? Here's what he did. He says a prayer and literally doesn't give God one second to do anything. To give peace, to answer, to show what he's going to do. I mean, hey, don't we all know what Jacob did here, don't we? We're all familiar with what he did. We've all done it ourselves. I said a prayer, but God, I'm going to give you up. You're done. It's mine now. I'm I'm going to go back to owning this and taking care of it. So God says, all right, Jacob, back to the woodshed. No, not the woodshed, but it's time for another lesson. You know, that's what we got introduced to last week. God's going to discipline. Discipline's not a bad word. It's not always fun. It's not always comfortable. But it's a good word. It's done by God's love. It is to train us. It is to teach us. It is to mature us and grow us. And that, that process doesn't end until we win. Step into heaven. Okay, so it's an ongoing thing for Jacob. It's an ongoing thing for you and me. So Jacob's going to get another lesson. And this is one of the strangest lessons I think you'll ever read about. So let's look and see what that lesson is. Uh, we're still in, still in chapter 32. Look at verse 22. During the night, Jacob got up and he took his two wives, his two servant wives and his 11 sons, and they crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions, which was a lot. This, this would take all night to do. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. And then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name, the man asked. And he replied, Jacob. And he said, your name will no longer be called Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel. Because you have fought with God and with men, and you have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, for which, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. 
The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Even today, now when it says even today, it's not referring to October 2023. It's referring to when Moses wrote this. When Moses is writing, he's saying, hey, that was several hundred years ago. Even today, still today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. Okay, that's a, that's a different story, isn't it? I mean, it, it's a story that, that fills us with, leaves us with a, a, a lot of questions. Like, who is this man? Who, who's the assailant? Doesn't it feel like by the end of the story we're supposed to think it's God? It, it, it kind of comes that way to me. Well, if it is God, well, then now I'm even more confused. Why is God afraid of the dawn? Why couldn't he beat him? I mean, God's all powerful. Why, why couldn't he beat Jacob? Why does he touch his hip and bust it up like that? It's a story that fills us with a, a lot of questions. It's been interesting to, to watch people try to answer some of these questions through the ages. I mean, we, we can go all the way back to just after the time of Jesus. There's a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. His writings are incredible. They, they give great insight. They're not biblical. They're not scripture. But they give insight to the history going on around biblical events. They give insight to how people thought, to what culture was. And so he, he's referred to a lot. Josephus said this is a dream. That, that's what this is. He's dreaming about this fight. Philo, he existed a couple of a hundred years out, a year, hundred years before Jesus. He said, hey, this is an allegory. It's a story to make a point. Others have suggested, oh, it's very real, but it's not physical. It's, it's spiritual. It's prayer. And some of us may even know that experience. You, you wrestled with God in prayer. You, you held on to God all night. It was hard. It was hard. So it was, just, it was prayer, not actually, you know, like, like fighting and, and wrestling. You know, the problem with all those ideas, waking up from a dream doesn't leave you limping the rest of your life. That, that's the only problem with all of these ideas. And so most theologians down through the ages have actually taken this as a real event. It takes place in historical narrative. There's no clue that we're not giving historical narrative. We've now switched to something. No, it's, it's a very real event. And such an important event. I, I would send every American Christian, and it's really not American, it's Western thinking. I, I would send every Western thinking person, and that's what we all are, I would send them to this story. It's a, it's a very profound story in understanding our walk and our relationship with God. Because in Western thinking, we always want answers. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to suggest that it's wrong to want answers. I think we have a lot of great discoveries, a lot of great inventions, because we're always looking for the formula, for the answer, for the way. But there are places where that can trip us up, like in a relationship with God. I, I, I want answers. I don't want to wrestle with God. I just want an answer. Why did this happen? Where were you? How could you let that happen? And I want God to step up front and center, and, and I want him to give me an answer, preferably with a bow on it. 
That means it's a simple, clean, easy to understand answer. It's the one I wanted. It's the one I like. Because when I call God forward, come come on up. I need you to answer some questions. I also have the audacity to tell God, and I will judge your answer. And I will decide, you know, Lord, if I don't like the answer, I can't make any promises about believing in you. I can't make any promises about trusting you from here on out. And I just described millions of American Christians. I mean, our arrogance really is something, isn't it? You know, I want God, I want God to step forward. Now, I'm, he's the infinite. I'm the finite. I barely can remember yesterday. I barely got a hold of today. I know nothing about tomorrow. But I want the God who knows all things and is infinite to pour himself down into me and make it clear. That's just, that can't happen. It's not, it's not going to happen. I also think this is a real important story because you just witnessed the defining of the Jewish faith. Now, I say that with a little bit of trepidation with a rabbi in the room. Okay, now, I'm not speaking for every single Jew and their experience, their journey in faith. I can't speak for that any more than I can every Christian. But I think in this story, you really have... How the Jews follow God. You and I follow God because he's going to give me answers. That's why we come. You're going to give me answers. And I need to like the answer. Jews, I don't know that they're always so wrapped up in the answer. Yeah, you, you believe in God, it's a fight. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Sometimes you get the answer, sometimes you don't get the answer. But win or lose, get the answer or don't get the answer, you you hold on to God. And I, and I think a lot of Jews would actually describe it as, it's very frustrating. I'm not even sure I always like this God. But, but they won't let go. And I'm talking about a Jew that's really holding on to his faith. Obviously, some do. But this story where, where Jacob gets this name, we see Israel for the first time in the Bible, it really gives us a character quality of the Jewish faith. In Western thinking, I want a God that gives me answers. In, in Jewish thinking, you hold on to them, but no guarantees of what's coming. <laughs> because here's the reality. God doesn't owe us answers. And that's shocking and almost insulting to the Western mind. Why would I even want a God that doesn't promise me, that doesn't give me all the answers that I want? Again, folks, it, it, it's like me explaining to a three-year-old surgery. There's no point. They don't have the ability to grasp it. I can't take my knowledge and experience and put it into a brain that is not yet wired and designed to understand anything I'm going to say about that. And that is what it is like for an infinite God to speak into our very finite being and finite experience. But it's not that God's being, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) No. Listen, God doesn't owe us answers. And until we understand that and appreciate it, we're not going to appreciate all the answers he gives. And God has given us all the answers we need. And I'm referring back to how I spoke last week. God's given us all the answers we need for every dark and confusing page in our story. When we're on one of those pages where there's no answers, the answers are there. 
Now, I sound like I've already gotten to the end of what this is all about without really looking at the story. No, we're not done. Let's go back and look at the story a little bit. Okay, so we've got this wrestling going on. And that word for wrestle, it doesn't say fight. Probably the appropriate word is fight. The reason it's interpreted wrestle is because the, the, the literal meaning of that word has the idea of dirt. You're not up boxing. You're actually down in the dirt, grappling, wrestling, and, and fighting. This is, this is a mess here. Now, who is he fighting with? Did you notice in the story how little information is given about the fight? It's not even a whole sentence. A man came in, they wrestled through the night. And then everything else after that is what happened after they wrestled all night long. So no, no information about the fight. So who, who is this? I'm just going to go with God because that's how the story leaves us, right? And that, that's how Jacob understood it at the end. And it's not unusual, even in Genesis, that God show up in, in the form of a man. He also did that in our lives, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call it the Gospels. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not confused about who this is. I'm not even confused about why he's trying to get out of town before the sun comes up. No, God's not a vampire. That's not what's going on. Folks, think of what we've learned about Jacob. Most of the defining moments in Jacob's life, good and bad, happened at dark or when somebody couldn't see and when somebody was confused. What he did to his dad, what Laban did to him, and now God, remember, this is a a teaching moment. This is a maturing moment. This is a a growing moment. We'll understand what that growing is about in just a second. So I think God fully intends for this entire thing to be in darkness. He does not want Jacob to have clarity. He doesn't want him to get it, okay? I'm not giving you an answer here about who this is. Remember, God doesn't know us answers. So I'm not concerned about that. This is what's been going on in Jacob's life the, the whole time. And, and, and the hip, I, he intends to cripple him. We'll look at that in just a second. No, no, the big question for me is, okay, if this is God, why couldn't you beat him? Are you ready for this? I, this is revolutionary. This kind of rocked me back a little bit. God's not there to beat him. God's not trying to beat you, folks. He's not trying to beat you. He's not trying to defeat you. He's not trying to overwhelm you until you are broken and submissive and just following along behind him as a sniveling little wimp. God doesn't need that. God's not trying that. Listen, we saw... So Jacob is having an interaction with the living God, right? Now his glory is covered... But I see people who have an interaction with the living God in the Bible. Ezekiel had that. Isaiah had that. John the Apostle, who was known as the best friend of Jesus. John the Apostle in Revelation 1. These are folks that saw the living God in all his glory. And in all three places, the word that comes next is something likened to an emotional breakdown. Our physical, mental, emotional frame cannot handle the presence and the glory of God. It's, it's too much for us to take in. If God would have revealed himself this way right now, Jacob wouldn't have fought. He would have fallen on the ground in worship. And God wants him to fight. God wants him to engage. And you know, even in a story where it says God couldn't beat him, you notice when God was done, what did he do? 
He reached out. He didn't punch. He didn't push. He reached out and touched and obliterated his hip. So clearly, it's a supernatural event that just took place. So God, God doesn't want to beat him. Now, why doesn't one God beat him? I think God likes Jacob. Call me crazy. I think he likes Jacob's character qualities. Jacob is tenacious, and Jacob is a strategist. Jacob has the ability. Matter of fact, you know what way Jacob is not ever described for his physical prowess. J- Jacob is never described as a as a fighter. As a matter of fact, if you go back early in the story, that's his brother Esau. Esau's the warrior. Esau's the hunter. It literally describes Jacob. I'll stay at home with mom today. That, that's the way he's described. He's not looking to engage, but Jacob has the ability to approach a person to approach a situation, and it doesn't take him long to figure out how to come out on top. He knows how to own the day. He knows how to own the moment. He knows how to own you. And I think God's impressed with him. Now, what God's not impressed with is that Jacob often uses his gifts and abilities for his own selfishness. For his own well-being. Hey, just because I have a good character quality doesn't mean I'm using it for good things. Right? We've all seen that in people. Yeah, so I, I, God's not wanting to break him of that. God's not wanting to defeat him in that. God just wants to own that character quality for his glory and for his honor. And so he reaches a place where he reaches out and cripples them because what Jacob has got to learn is everything I am and everything I'm doing, every quality I have, I have to trust in God for that. I've got to stop approaching everything with how do I come out on top? And so how's he going to remember that? With every single step. So walk with God. And every step I'm going to remember I'm not enough. You know, it really is interesting. It's such a bizarre story, and yet, actually, how real and true is it? How often have you and I thought, I thought I was fighting that person? I thought I was fighting that situation. And never recognized, never realized I was fighting God. No, he'll leave the situation. He'll leave that in a cloud of darkness. He'll leave that in a cloud of confusion. He wants you to engage so he can get you to that place where he cripples you, that place where you stop trusting in yourself. Hey, you know what? All those times you won, that might have been the worst thing that could have happened because you're still walking upright, proud and strong. Interesting, isn't it? You know, and let's keep in mind, as they're rolling around in the dirt, grunting, panting, sweating, it hurts. Ah! (laughs) You know what was never in question? God's love. God's promises, God's blessings, God's forgiveness. That is not in question here. What is in question is growing Jacob into Christ-likeness. And that's what God is doing and working in this moment. And, and as Jacob, and I'm going to change the story on us here, as Jacob loses, you say Jacob didn't lose, says he won. Who's, who's holding on desperately at the end of the story? Who's begging at the end of the story? See, I think Jacob got it. 
<laughs> I, I, he's holding on to God. Hey, I don't understand what's going on here. Esau's still coming. Nothing has happened tonight that means Esau's no longer. He's still on the way with 400 men. But he holds on to God. Why? Because God's still God. God is all I have. It's profound faith actually being demonstrated here. And in that moment, I think we need to hear God say, ah, you got it. You got it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to change your name. No longer. Remember it says, hey, what's your name? He wants him to say it out loud because you remember his name means deceiver. What's your name? Deceiver. Not anymore. That's, that's not how you're going to approach life anymore. Your name now? Israel. One who that literally just means contends with God. That, that's the entire meaning of the word. Contends. What did I say about that nation and its character? A walk with God is a wrestle. You contend. You hold on. Maybe you walk away with answers. Maybe you don't. But he's all you got. So you hold on. And that's what Jacob is demonstrating for us right here. God says, you got it, man. You're, you're Israel from now on. Now, great victory, right? Remember, great victory. He prayed, great defeat. He then went back to doing it himself. Here, you're Israel. I mean, I'm going to hold on to you. You're Israel. Great victory. Then right back to defeat. Hey, what's your name? And that what, and what Jacob said, hey, tell me, tell, tell, tell me, before we get away from here, you tell me your name. Now, remember, that doesn't, we're going to read right past that and not think a thing. In the Bible, and particularly a number of times in Genesis, naming is a big deal. To name something shows authority, shows lordship, shows ownership. And so as as the loser (laughs) just renamed him, he said, well, now wait a minute, wait a minute, what's your name? You know what he wants there? What every American walking with Jesus wants. I want a formula. I want to know what I do so that I get the answers from you I want, get you to do what I want, get you to take care of me. You know, we want, we want a little genie in the bottle, right? I need help. Out pops God. Gives us the help. Okay, back in the bottle. I, I need an answer. I get the answer back in the bottle. You say, wait a minute. I don't say back in the bottle. Sure you do. I bet, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and say 100% of us had a conversation this week we didn't want God to hear and be a part of. We did something this week. We knew God wouldn't do that. Wouldn't be standing there with a smile on us. No, no, no. There's, there's times we very, very much want God around, and then there's times, ah, God, I know you're busy over there. You just get what you need to done. We want, we want a God that serves my purposes. I want a God that when I work the formula, out pops the answer that I want. And that's kind of what Jacob is saying here. Hey, wait, 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 wait. You tell me your name now. I says, why do you ask my name? You know, the force of that question is this. Why do you ask my name? You already know who I am. And you say, how do you know? That's the force of the question. Look at Jacob's response. (gasps) Ah! I've seen God. He knew who he was. And he saw God. Incredible story. Different story. Questions, story with a lot of questions that leaves us with really a very simple conclusion. 
Hold on to God. Hold on to God. You know, that you can needlepoint that and put that in the kitchen somewhere. Be sweet, won't it? Maybe put on. I mean, it's kind of a cute statement, isn't it? Hold on to God. The only problem with that cute statement is the moment you need it is when you don't want to hold on to God. You, you know what holding on to God looks like? It means you pray and you're getting nothing. No answers, no clarity, but you keep praying. It, it, it means you give and you can't tell it's paying off. As a matter of fact, it's, times are still kind of tight. It means you forgive and they don't change. They're not even thankful that you forgave them. But you keep forgiving. You keep obeying. Can't tell where the blessing came. Wait, I, wait, I thought if I obeyed, then where's, where's the blessing? I don't see it. You keep you keep worshiping. You keep showing up with God's people. And you keep singing when you're not even sure you like them right now. That's holding on. And you hold on because it's all you've got. And that's okay. If God's all you've got, that's okay. And if you think you've got something more, <laughs> then, the, then the lessons aren't done. And, and the fight will continue. So that probably means it's a good, good time for us on the way out today to be thinking, hey, what am I doing to hold on to God? Now, we, you can break us up into two groups in here right now. There's some of us right now desperately holding on to God, and there's some of us who are not. And that's not a negative statement. We're just not in a crisis at the moment. There's nothing urgent in the moment. I'm, just, I'm not feeling any pressure right now. I'm not feeling, though, I need to hold on to God. I may be holding on to him, but it's not that, you know what I'm saying? Not that desperate. There's some in here right now very desperate. You're in a crisis. What are you doing to hold on to God? You know, if you don't know, then you're not. A couple weeks ago with Abraham, we talked about faith muscles. You know what what faith muscles do? They hold on to God when everything is saying, let go. What are you doing to exercise your fingers, your hands, to hold on to God? I'll guarantee whatever it is we're doing, it starts with, I need to keep on. Right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you show us where we're not holding on to you? We may be saying a prayer, a good prayer, just like Jacob. But the truth of the matter is, we've hardly got amen out before we're, we're up and going in our own way and in our own will. God, I pray you'd, you'd convict us of that. Let us see where it's happening, when it's happening. Lord, I, I want to say I, I give you permission to wrestle me, but I don't want to wrestle. Lord, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I just want an answer. Lord, we take this and we lay it at your feet and we say, God, I want you to be enough. I want you to be more than the answer. I want you to be more than the answers I want in my heart, in my mind, in my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.